3: Today we're speaking to Dr. Alex George. Some might know him from the popular TV reality show, Love Island, but today he's got his doctor's hat on to speak about his ADHD diagnosis and how best to harness it. So here's how to own your differences, some clever life hacks to help self-motivate, and the reason you'd never guess as to why he chose a hairdryer for his ADHD item.
2: Dr. Alex George, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to, it's great to be here. I've got quite the array of items around us and we're gonna be delving into some of these, I'm sure. But uh, we, well done, great work on, on this podcast. It's, a, it's an amazing one, it's a great space. It's fantastic what you're doing. It's quite nice to have something that's dedicated to the ADHD community. I mean, it's amazing that like, the growth of the platform and the podcast is, is amazing. The social media and stuff, it just shows the demand, doesn't it, for, or the need, I guess, for this kind of good quality conversation. Well, oh, thank you, May. I appreciate that. And yes, it, it does. It,
3: I think we were discussing earlier, so much of the ADHD narrative is, is, is doom and gloom. Mm. And especially young kids, they, they think they might have ADHD and they go on Google and they look it up and, and it tells them that they're going to be nothing but a liability. Mm. And in mm. fact, if there's awareness and systems to mitigate the challenges...
2: There's tremendous strengths that are associated with with ADHD. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at if you look at it this way, I mean, so many people in the creative space, leaders of, of the country, leaders of businesses, um, you know, innovators, creatives are are those people who are neurodivergent. That includes people with ADHD, and I think even the name ADHD kind of sets up. People for this negative view of it, because um, you know you've got attention deficit. This whole thing around being deficient of something, whereas most research shows that um, people with ADHD actually have very adequate amounts and and, uh, amounts of attention. It's where that's placed that can be the challenge when you apply it to a neurotypical setting. So if you take uh, a group of um, children who have ADHD and you put them in a nine to five school setting, a lot of them will struggle with that. However, if you adapt that school setting and you're not doing hour long blocks that you're breaking them into 15, 20 minute chunks of learning and you focus on attention led or interest led learning, you'll find that those with ADHD will excel to huge degrees. Um, I mean, many would argue that the nine to five setting hour long classes don't actually benefit even the neurotypical because most neurotypical people can concentrate for about 20 to 25 minutes at a time anyway. I think that's what's fascinating is that so much of the stigma around ADHD, part of it is like naughty boys is a big, big um, stereotype, which is quite interesting because actually um, the gender split, you know, if you look at uh, true incidence of ADHD is quite equally split Mm -hmm. across men and women. Um, The ADHD uh, picture of like a young naughty boy bouncing around the room is so far off the truth anyway. I mean, only about 10% of people with ADHD have hyperactivity. Most people are combined. They have kind of the mixed... Uh, mixed type obviously a lot of women have inattentive that's kind of quite a common type that women will have and it's just such a problematic thing and that's why it's brilliant what you're doing with the podcast because it's not just about getting people positive about it it's trying to get people to realize what it actually is because if people think it's just about a naughty young boy that's hyperactive running around the room, for a start, you're going to make them feel like rubbish when they don't need to. And secondly, there's a whole bunch of people, particularly women, who are going to think, oh, well, I don't have it. Mm. That's not what I have, because I'm not a, a boy bouncing around the room. So that's why anti-stigma is so important, because it's not about just about getting people thinking positively. It's getting people to understand, what are we actually talking about here? Since, since you got diagnosed, what... Do
3: you think you've learned about ADHD and in other areas that it showed up in your life that might actually contradict what that stereotype is?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think that having the diagnosis has largely changed my entire life. I can, I think, I don't know if I can be put it any other way, really. I mean, I, the reason I looked into it at the age of thirty one was because I started this podcast called The Stompcast. Um, you know, we we walk and talk with the guests, we find out about their lives, and I started the podcast with the vision that I would walk with people each week walk with the guests each week, we'd record the podcast, would get people outdoors enjoying nature, which I'm very passionate about. And by the way, one of the greatest and one of the best treatments for symptoms or difficulties associated with ADHD is nature therapy. Walking in nature was brilliant. And I thought people will learn from the conversations. What mm-hmm. I didn't expect was how profound that difference would be on me. You know, those Stompcast has been going now for a year and a half because of the conversations I had, for example, with Todd Letty, the the DJ who had or has ADHD and was diagnosed, conversations with him, conversations in sobriety, all the kind of different things I've had and experiences I've had, it's changed my life. You know, I was diagnosed with ADHD, I stopped drinking, I live a much healthier, happier life, and probably the most creative and calm that I've mm. ever been. Uh, and it started really with the podcast, but yes, understanding why I am this way. And then when you look back on your life, you're saying about things that you look at, just like, it's like this whole like domino effect this reverse domino, like it starts knocking back the dominoes back to the start and you're looking back on your life and like, oh, okay. Mm. This all makes a lot more sense now. You know, I was I was born um, as a as a first son, a first child. My mum found that I didn't sleep for the three, first three years of my life. One of the strongest um, prognostic um, uh, indicators that someone has ADHD is when you look back at their childhood, particularly for those with hyperactive ADHD, they often don't sleep as babies. So I didn't sleep for three years because of, of ADHD, probably. Um, and then throughout my life, I think the struggles I had at school, um, I was always, I think, very bright, but I really struggled with being attentive for long periods of time. Nothing on my attention, but for long periods of time on things I wasn't interested in, mm. a real challenge. And I think as you go through your life, you just start lining everything up. You're like, oh my god, this all makes sense. And now, rather than trying to change myself and be something I'm not, because of course, I'll always have ADHD, I start harnessing the benefits of it, and realizing where, yeah, some things I'm not going to be good at, or some things will be challenging for me, and that's that's okay. A great degree of the benefit of being diagnosed, if you have it, is the acceptance that bring that comes with that diagnosis, mm-hmm. that sense of, it's okay to be who I am, you know?
3: After your diagnosis, you did a interview with a, a British newspaper, and something I found really intriguing. You said, "Looking back, you've always felt different to everyone else." Mm. What, what, what exactly do
2: you mean by that? Well, I wonder. I wonder if you felt this way, but I think a lot of people who are um, neurodivergent or neurodiverse say that they. One of the common things they will, most people will say, is they felt different. If you mm. ask people with autistic spectrum disorder. Um, often one of the common uh, symptoms is a point of difference, like a common difference. And mm. they will say to their their, their their doctor, whoever they're talking to as a professional, that I just feel different. And I think that was something that I felt. I look back and I think, yeah, I never quite felt the same as everyone else. Like, for example, in the classroom, I was like, how's all these other kids sit here reading the book for an hour or doing the work? And, you know, obviously people are being naughty, but I really couldn't concentrate. I couldn't take it. I was looking at the page in front of me and I was like, I can't take this in unless I was interested in it. Or, mm. as what most often actually happened, to be perfectly honest, is I took it in very quickly, and I got bored. And that's and then when I was bored, I'd, my attention would go to other things. It's not that I was naughty. I was never a naughty child. I don't think I was ever like, I don't think a teacher would ever be like, oh, he was really rude or anything. I just wouldn't ever concentrate. And so what happened is that I'd do the task, then I'd be like talking to my friends, like, hey, what's going on distracting them? And then I get removed from classroom. And eventually it got to the point where I was removed from class a lot of the time. And my mum went in was it like, look, this is my first child. I obviously don't know about education and child age, but he he seems very bright. Why has he been removed from mainstream education, basically? And it was funny because the person at the time said to my mom, said, look, you know, we can try and put him back into class, but you've got to have realistic expectations. I don't think he's going to grow up to be, you know, do something like be, you know, a doctor or something like that. Uh, and obviously years later, that was quite funny to look back on that. But you know, that was the kind of mm-hmm. negativity that was surrounded rather than going, what's going on here? This person is quite a, a relatively bright mm-hmm. person. There's challenges, why don't we deal with it? It was kind of like, let's just remove him from from that environment. So yeah, I guess there are, there are definitely negative things I look back on. I think my only regret, I don't really regret, it's not, it's not a regret for me to bear, but my only thing I look back on is that how different could it have been if I'd have been diagnosed at a young age and had the right support and that you'd have nurtured this because I'm the lucky one right I'm a lucky one because I have a very caring good family around me which many people have but I have a good family around me and I'm one of the most stubborn people you'll ever meet so if someone says you can't do something Mm. I'm the person that will go to the end of the earth to to, to do it Um, and I think when I was told that that you're not going to do it I was like oh this is not happening Mm. so I went back in the classroom I forced myself to kind of try and be as neurotypical as possible I got my way into med school but how many people with the same goal wouldn't have got there? You know, I was very fortunate. There's a huge degree of luck. I had the right people around me. There's no doubt that that is a big part of it as well. Would I have got there otherwise? And I think the sad fact is, so many people who are neurodivergent get cast along the side, mm. or they don't get to where they want to be, not because they can't or they don't have something to add or to give, but because they weren't given the right support or just the freedom. Actually, most 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 people with neurodivergence actually just need freedom to be themselves. If we stop trying to conform people into the sausage factory or into the, into the, you have to be this replica of the other person, if you allow them just to be, you'll find that they will find their place, they'll mm. find where they're meant to be. You know, most productivity books now, most people that talk about growth and learning and development, you know, say that actually the most important thing is that someone has that innate sense of motivation, That's innate sense of, I, I feel motivated to do this, I enjoy this, I know my purpose, I know why I'm here. And that is when you hit that flow state mm. and that beautiful sense of, yeah, feeling purposeful in life.
3: It's actually quite sad because you mentioned there that the your teachers told your parents that mm. you were essentially different and you probably wouldn't amount to something. And I think there's a statistic that people with ADHD mm. are, are encounter up to ten thousand negative or corrective messages before their 10th birthday. And actually, a lot of that is not because there's anything objectively wrong with them. It's because they're not doing what the neurotypical child should should, should be doing. Um, so there's not actually yeah. anything wrong with them. They're just being... Mm. It, it's an unfair comparison because it's assuming that all, all brains are the same. It's not mm. taking into account the diversity of thought. And mm. actually, an ADHD kid... Uh, might be sat at the back of the class, very still, but with a racing mind, yeah. daydreaming, full of anxiety, um, and of course, in that condition, then that child isn't going to get good grades, mm. or they're not going to be contributing to the mm. class. And because of that, the teacher then might say, "Oh, Alex is quiet, or Alex mm. isn't going to amount to anything." But it's not because he's mm. he's,
2: he's 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 thick; it's because he is mm. he's in a condition that isn't suited to how his brain works. Would you say that was your experience? Are you describing yourself in that of interest? Yeah,
3: so I had my first panic attack when I was sat in the Mm. back of a classroom when I was six years old. Mm. Um, I found a cleaner in the corridor and I asked them to call an ambulance. Mm. And I thought I was having a heart attack Mm. (laughs) at six years old. Um, And it was that anxiety of just being so acutely aware of everything. And then actually the teacher pointed at me and said, Alex, do you know the answer to this question? Mm. And everyone looked at me. And in that moment, that's when my face went bright red and my heart went. And that was really my first encounter. Mm. It wasn't my first encounter with that feeling. It was my first time I heard the word anxiety, Mm. when the paramedic said, you've had an anxiety attack. And Mm. I was six years old. Mm. Um, But I think that's the case from speaking to people is that environment, that classroom, um, so anxiety inducing, Mm. because it's just not catered to, I wanted to be out creating stuff Mm. or building you know, at home when I was six, I was building businesses and designing board games to send off to board game companies and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I wasn't, I hate classrooms. It's mm. such a bad environment for me. Mm. But all the kids are forced
2: to be in that environment. Mm. And look what you, you've you gone on to achieve and all the things you've done. I mean, your creativity is, is, is immense. And it's like, the shame is, is that, I think, you know, we both sit here. As, but I don't know your life and I'm not going to talk for you, but we sit here with people that for whatever journey we've had, we're here, right? But how many people have ended up with addiction and, you know, um, uh, real uh, uh, difficulties in their life relating to like employment or homelessness and things like that, you know, this some, I'm not going to try and quote them but because I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's some quite frightening statistics around neurodivergence and and homelessness, for example. Um, and, and it's something that's, you know, really strikes me is that I think the risk of being cast aside is is a lot higher and the risk of like fall, falling around the wayside is mm. there as well. And yeah, I just look back at the school system and I think it's hard because, you know, teachers are doing their best and I don't hold any judgment to the teachers that looked after me or, you know, people that have, because most of the time they're doing their best, but the problem is that if the awareness isn't there, people don't understand what they're looking at, they're not going to know how to support people. I think that was the challenge as well. You know, that is a big part of the challenge is that, you know, it's not just for us as individuals or parents, but it's the people around those young people growing up, especially in his formative years, it's vital that they understand what this is. You know, I think the the work that um, the, uh, the Princess of Wales is doing is fantastic around, you know, the kind of you know, looking at young people's development, you know, that kind of 89% of their neurodevelopment is done by the age of five, or, mm. you know, the influence that you can have both positively and negatively is huge by that age. So that's why I just to think, if we can just work a bit on the system and just look at educating people, look at the awareness side of it, then we could kind of change some of this stuff. Because like you said, if you take, you take you know, a group of people with ADHD and you have them, you know, in, in environments that that reflect their output, reflect their the way that they interact with the world, you'll find that they're pretty damn useful people to have. Mm. Like if you've got a business, honestly, if you've got a business, you wanna have plenty of people with neurodivergence in your business because they do think outside the box. I mean, we do, right? We, we have differences of thought, that's a big part of it, different way. Differences of attention, differences of thought, differences of interaction with the world, differences of interaction with people around us. And that diversity of living, almost, creates an ability to create ideas that are new, that are innovative. innovative. Mm. And I think that's what's exciting. So. Let's not just see people with ADHD as people. We need to help them because they're struggling. It's like actually, how do you how do you get the the magic these people have, and how do you help that grow? You know, water mm. that plant, turn it into a flourishing flower. You know. Yeah. No, totally
3: agree. And I think all, all corporations, all companies can benefit from from having ADHD or any all, all neurodivergency in the workforce for a lot of the reasons you just said. Mm. That diversity of thought, that risk taking, that go-get-it attitude. Let's, you know, we're doers. Mm. Um, we don't dwell on failure too much, which actually means mm. we can move on to the next thing quite quickly if it doesn't quite work out. I think the thing that gets in the way is anxiety quite mm. a lot of the time because you've got that person who's in an environment, in an office, in a classroom, whatever it might be, and anxiety is actually clouding or paralyzing that part of their brain that mm. can make them so good. Mm. So I suppose my question is, do you do anything that helps your anxiety?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think probably, um, I mean, I was most agitated when I was at school because mm. I was stuck in this environment. I was very blessed, actually, when I went to med school to go to a place that had a very modern way of thinking in terms of medical um, studies. So a traditional medical school would be very nine to five, lectures coming through your ears, reading a million books, like that kind of stuff. Whereas a med school I went to was very, very self-directed learning. This is the curriculum. These are the lectures, you can be in person or you can watch online. Or you can learn it through the transcript or you can find your own ways. But this is what you've got to learn. These are the designated hours. You need to be here to do your clinical stuff, which was very practical, and I loved that. I mean, you're in there being creative. You're learning to, you know, stitch. You're learning to do all these different skills. Brilliant for, for that kind of learning. I love that. But I basically did almost all my learning out of lectures. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was at med school, I flourished. You know, I had to work really hard a lot harder than I think my capability was to get the grades I needed. But when I went to med school, suddenly this was, for me, it was heaven. I mean, you know, I i i got very high scores, you know, very early in med school because it was just so good for my way of learning. And I loved it. And I think that was a huge change for my anxiety, dropped off a lot there. But a lot of my methods for dealing with, I think, the anxiety associated with ADHD or just the general coping of life has come later in life. Because at med school, you don't really learn about these things. You know, you're learning about pathophysiology, anatomy, disease. Whereas what we're talking about a lot of the time, yes, I guess treatment of anxiety is a medical treatment at times, but a lot of it is actually about well-being and just like innate sense of self-care, like the like a lot of that kind of stuff. In the same way that med school, we don't learn a lot about physical training. You know, I did a, um, I've done my level three personal training qualifications because I wanted to learn about function about fitness about you know developing a strong healthy body which i don't think we really did very much mm. in med school and equally with uh, looking after the mind that stuff i've learned afterwards so in the last kind of four or five years i've just really like immersed myself in that world like what's out there what works what doesn't work and so i think i i built a very good toolkit for myself you know, i wrote the the mind manual um, as a, a, a you know a fitness uh, mental fitness tool in a book for everyone really that you can take away you can look at things that will help and work for you or adapt them to make them work for you. Uh, and you you learn that. I mean, for me, one of the biggest things has been nature. It's the reason I start the Stompcast. Nature therapy is amazing for everyone. It's particularly helpful for people with neurodivergence because being amongst nature is great for grounding. When you're outside in the natural world, you realise that there is a lot more than oneself. You know, and when you start realising and become aware of your outer body realities or the things that are around you, it suddenly makes you feel uh, your problems feel not as big. They become smaller. You know, I mean, it's like the idea. A very useful thing, actually, if you have a feeling like you're going to get anxious or a panic attack is to use the kind of zoom out, zoom in trick. So Mm. sit there and think, right, I am this person sat in this room right now. Zoom out to the universe. Think how big the universe is think how small this one Earth, this planet is in the universe, then zoom in and think, right, this country that we live in in England is actually a tiny speck on the universe, and then you're a person in there, and you realise that actually your problems feel like they're all consuming of your entire world, but they're a small part of everything else, and that's been very helpful for me a few times where I felt a bit anxious, like, actually my problems don't have to be as great as, as they feel, nature's brilliant for that. Nature's brilliant for grounding. Exercise. I mean, probably on the biggest things for me, preventatively and also as a treatment of anxiety is exercise. I mean, a lot of the studies out there now say that probably the greatest medication or treatment for the negative effects of ADHD is exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, when you run and you go and exercise, your dopamine is raised. We know obviously... um, ADD ADHD is a dopamine deficit disorder. You're getting your dopamine up, but the beautiful thing of exercise versus a lot of other things like sugar and foods is that your dopamine doesn't crash. It glides down. It's like the sail effect. So it kind of rises up as you exercise, and then throughout the hours in the day, it'll glide down. So you'll have that lovely long-lasting dopamine boost. Fantastic for for um, for ADD. The other one as well is cold showers for me. You know, cold showers again, spike your dopamine and again, keep it boosted throughout the day. So every morning I go up for my walk, I'm in nature, it's exercise as well. And I have my cold shower. And since I've been doing that, it's completely changed uh, my levels of anxiety. I get out with a positive mindset. I feel good. I feel calm. I'm ready to tackle the day. And what Ooh. I'd say to people is build your own toolkit. Is what I talk about in the mind manual. User science I've talked about. Look at the different things that have worked for other people and pick out the things that are going to work for you. It's so true. I I
3: noticed when I started running, my concentration, my focus, my the, the trajectory of my day completely changed mm. for the for the better. If I, if I don't go for my morning run, my day is very sluggish. Mm. It's very slow. It feels like I'm sometimes dragging bricks behind me, but I'm having to sit down and do something. But I go and do a two or three k in the morning, or even just do fifty star jumps if I'm busy in the flat. Mm. Um, the clarity of thought, the the benefit to the,
2: my focus throughout the day is unbelievable. There's 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 a lot of levels and layers to it. I mean, part of it is physiologically, the kind of serotonin, dopamine, if you like, sense of clarity that you get, the blood flow to your brain, those kind of things. But also you're actually making a real statement to your world and to yourself that you are important. Because if someone had zero value for them, themselves and their lives, and I've been there, you're not going to see the value in exercise and and you're not going to... It's so hard to kind of genuinely feel the benefit of doing that exercise. But when you get into a rhythm of doing things like exercise or having the cold shower, whether it's a self-care or the unwinding, you're making a very important statement to yourself that you matter. And as soon as you start doing that, you start then buying into this important fact, which is true, that you're important. And that when you that when you spend time on yourself, that actually you're not just doing something for, this, for like the sake of it, of exercise. Mm. So you're doing something because... You care about yourself, and then you end up in this positive cycle. When you do it in the morning, you're you're basically saying to the universe that the most important thing I do today is look after myself. Everything else comes after. And mm. you know, I say to people like, you know, and I have men, very many people saying, oh, "I'm so busy. It's so hard. Like life is so busy." And they're right; they're absolutely right. Life is busy, but nothing is more important than your health. And I would argue that anyone that uh, that spends a bit of time each day that's exercising, walking, whether it's reading, whatever it is. Investing in yourself is investing in your entire life. You will be better at everything you do because you've done that. And there's a little bit of a chicken or the egg, isn't there, like in that scenario. But I genuinely believe that the investment you make in yourself is the most important one you do mm. and that you must make time. You have to make time. And if you're looking for time, by the way, especially with people with ADHD, you know, listening to this or watching this, is a little challenge. Go on your phone go onto screen time and look at your average hours spent each day. I'm going to guess it's between three or four hours a day. So when you say, I don't have time to do a half an hour run or a walk or to read or to do five minutes of meditation, steal it from that time. Mm. Take away from your four hours a day on your phone, take an hour off that. You've still got three hours on your phone. You, you can use that benefit. And I'm not judging anyone because it's exactly the thing I did to myself. I was like, oh God, have I got time? And I thought, what on my screen time? And I thought, mm. Alex... You know, and I took away from that time. So that's what I did. I, I made a screen time and I decreased the amount of time I was allowed on it. And that time has now bought me more self-care time. So there are tricks to use. Mm. Be careful of your own negative voice because it'll often find reasons not to do it. And it's like, oh, it looks cold outside. I don't want to go for that run. Go for the run. Don't do things based on how you feel mm. right now. Do things on based on how you're going to feel in an hour's time or a week's time. It's the same with them. I found it with alcohol and stopping drinking, the fast forward effect. It's like, if I have this drink tonight, how will I feel tomorrow? How will I feel in two weeks? How will I feel in six months? If I don't have this drink tonight, how will I feel tomorrow? How do I feel in two weeks? How do I feel in six months? It's a great way of maintaining any positive habit. A really useful thing
3: I do, because I, I agree, and I think if I've had a lot to drink and then I'm hung over, mm-hmm. and that massively affects my ability to do my work or to be productive in any way, and that often lasts for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But what I've found in the past is, and I don't know, this seems to be related to ADHD, is I actually often forget that experience. So two or three months or la- later, I don't have that memory to draw on, so I don't have that fear or that dread or that, I don't want to repeat that, so I'll have a drink and then it, the, the cycle continues. So now I actually mm. write down when I'm in that period of mm. I feel like hell. Um, I, I really journal it and write mm. it down and keep it visual mm. on my desk. So when that mm. when that temptation comes in to or later down the line, I can mm. sometimes I even take a photo of my of myself mm. looking like hell. Mm. Um, so when I get that temptation, I look at it and that actually snaps me back mm. to the memory of that feeling. Mm. And actually, that's often enough. To, 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 change my mm. path because I forget the feeling mm. that that you're talking about, um, and I think with ADHD
2: specifically that can be a real problem. Mm. Um, I use it actually for I've used it in the past not so much now because. so so when you're developing any habit you have to go through the phases of motivation discipline habit Mm. forming and you need to go through those phases because you'll have a motivation phase which lasts two three weeks but the longest motivation ever lasts in one flow it'll it'll come and go (laughs) throughout the cycle of, or throughout a period of time of any activity, but two or three weeks is usually the maximum. You'll have genuine sustained motivation. You then have to apply discipline and discipline is usually attached to the outcome. So you're disciplined because you want to, you know, get the grades to go to med school. You're disciplined because you want to remain alcohol free or because you want to get fit for a marathon. And that discipline, if applied long enough, will become habitual. Like I don't really, I don't ever, ever now question going out for a walk in the morning. I had to be disciplined for the first six months, probably. I now walk every morning regardless. The only thing that will stop me now is if there's a storm, literally sideways wind and thing. And I'm annoyed if that happens and I can't, and I'll mm. go out later in the day. But that happens because you do have a period of time. And in the initial phases, when you're applying discipline, it's having the right tools. And one really good trick that I've used for exercise, right, and it relates similar to that, is that I made this video on this day, I really didn't want to exercise. And I videoed, like, I don't want to go. I'm not going to the gym. I can't be bothered. I don't feel... I listed everything that was in my mind, just spoke it out to the camera, right? I then went to the gym. And then when I was walking home from the gym, I said exactly how I felt. How do I feel right now? And, just, and I, My face, I was visibly a different person. I was energized. I was bright. I felt... I was sweating like a pig. But I felt... I Clearly, in my eyes, I looked like an energized, happy, positive individual. I was mm. buzzing with positivity. So I always look now, if I'm ever tempted to not going, I look at before and after. And actually, like you said, I don't even have to now. I don't have to look at that because I know what I'll see and I go, I'm going to the gym. Mm. I'll get the video out. Okay, I'm going to the gym. And I think using the right tricks and the right ways of, you know, motivating yourself or learning what works, you know, for you really house. But I think for alcohol, it's a very interesting conversation. And I think I said before we even started, you know, I think it's an interesting conversation. You know, what are the occasions or scenarios um, that exist whereby someone should never drink alcohol. And I, th- I personally believe that there is an argument that, Well, we can agree on one thing, there is no benefit of alcohol anyway. I mean, there's, enough, there's there's no study that shows there's a benefit of alcohol. I used to talk about with the final thing people used to say there's a benefit of alcohol with was stress. But now a recent study showed that actually even one or two glasses of wine a week intri- increases your baseline levels of cortisol. So even on the stress hurdle, alcohol doesn't help. It creates a psychological dissociation, mm. which we feel is... Feeling relaxed, just in the short term. Yeah, which 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 it isn't really a true de-stress. You're just having this dissociation from your present state. You're like numbing a part of your brain. You're just you kind of you're coming away from your reality. Basically, when you come back into reality, you face twice as bad stress and anxiety. Right, but I think alcohol is one of those things. When you have alcohol and ADHD, I don't see there being a good outcome in very few scenarios. Of course, there's people that will watch this and you and, and and don't want to speak for you because you know i understand there's probably 5% 10% of people go actually i have adhd or add and i have a good relationship with alcohol but you know i think in 90% plus of scenarios it doesn't help i mean look at rates of uh, addiction in with adhd you know alcohol use disorder is diagnosed in around half of people with adhd about 50% of people's alcohol use disorder doesn't necessarily mean addiction but it means using that drug and it having a negative effect on one's life And I guess anyone listening or watching, you know, have a think and look inwards at your own life, look at your own relationship with alcohol if you have ADHD. And I'd argue that probably you would be happier and better off without it. And I don't want to be here like preaching, but I'm telling you as someone that drank all the way through my 20s, that drank quite a lot, that was at med school, that did all the the partying that was associated with Mm. that. I look back and think, would I have been happier and healthier without alcohol? And I know with every inch or every part of my heart and every part of my head that I would have been. Mm. And I think that alcohol is one of the, alcohol and ADHD I don't think mix very well. I don't know what you think. You've interviewed lots of people on this now. I mean, alcohol has probably come up quite a lot. What do you think about that? Do you think that alcohol and ADHD can mix? I've interviewed, like you said, I've interviewed a lot of people. The, 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 The main
3: question I get is what's, what, what advice would you give to improve my, AD, my the negative sides of ADHD? And the first thing I always say is, well, do you drink? Mm. Do you drink alcohol? And I say, well, if you can cut that out, I think that would be massively beneficial. Because from my experience and the people I've spoken to, for me, if I have a drink, in the, in, in the immediate term, it actually makes my ADHD considerably worse. Mm. Um, it ups my impulsivity. It decreases Same. all of the positives that I associate with ADHD. The creativity, the fast thinking, the problem solving, all of that disappears. And I end up just completely zoned out, yet yeah, in the short term I might be disassociated with the stress. But then the two or three days, even a week afterwards, my ADHD negatives are considerably heightened and all of the positives are muted. So I always say to people, like, do you drink? Are you able to, to reduce drinking or stop drinking? I, I think, and as you said, exercise, getting outside, it, it's, the, it's the simple lifestyle changes, I think, that are way more beneficial than a lot of the hacks, mm. the... The, the quick fixes, the uh, you should eat omega mm. threes, the dietary suggestions, the you know all the the mushroom th- things. Mm. Do you
2: drink alcohol? Because also, they're susceptible to addiction as well. It's uh, huge. It's huge. I mean, fifty percent alcohol use disorder is a shocking stat- statistic, really, and it, it and it's and it's largely there's lots of reasons to that, but I mean. The impulsivity is a huge, and I agree with you. My, my most of the most stupid things I've done in my life that I think, oh, do you know, what? I'd have done dealt with that situation differently. Or have, I wouldn't have done that or whatever. Were either when I immediately when I drank, or in the day after, you know, and it was relates to impulsivity or the anxiety that would come afterwards. Mm. And you know, I I I just think that those things would have been different if I hadn't have drunk. I think that's the problem: is that in the moment we feel. You know, I think it comes back to some of what we started with this saying that you feel different. A lot of the time, people, what people feel they want in life is to feel the same. You don't want to be the really tall person in the class. I was really tall. I hate being tall when I was younger. I you don't want to be a short person in the class. Or you don't want to be, I don't know, you want, you want to be the normal person. You want to mm-hmm. dress the same as everyone else. We don't want to stand out, do we, most of the time. And we do kind of stand out a bit, I think, not necessarily visually with ADHD, but we feel internally that we stand out, right? So alcohol provides this kind of solution of rounding. Mm. It rounds off all the edges and makes you kind of the same as everyone else. But at what cost? What is the cost of that rounding effect? And I think the cost is more negative effects relating to impulsivity, anxiety, and so on. And actually, as you correctly said, I think it's a really important point, is that you're actually also numbing the positives we're n- you're numbing the actual good parts of it, right? And I think that is that is the thing that perhaps we don't talk about enough. We talk about enhancing the negative effects of ADHD. We're actually removing the things that are good about us. You know, if you're, if you're you know, I mean, I look at it this way. Uh, you know, people go to the end of the earth almost in sports performance to add 5% of performance. How much does alcohol take off your daily performance? If you look at life as a performance, mm. what percentage does it take off? I mean, it's like, and people say, um, you know, I feel low or I feel sad or I lack energy or I lack creativity or I just don't I don't enjoy life that much. Do you drink alcohol? Do you drink alcohol? And I know judgment pride, but like that's an important thing to look at. If you drink alcohol, that's the first thing to address. Do the exercise, do all those other things. But if you feel sad in your life, the first thing I do is stop drinking. And people don't realize that not only does alcohol in the moment make you feel more depressed or the next day, Chronic use of alcohol and the chronic use of alcohol can be anywhere from you know four to five pints a week mm-hmm. up. So using alcohol in a, as a week, in a weekly basis can have a long-term effect on your mood. Alcohol is a depressant. It depresses the brain. So over time, alcohol can and will, for many people, make you depressed. Not for everyone. Now, there's loads of people. I've got friends that drink alcohol. They have a good relationship, quote unquote, with alcohol. They don't have any issues with it. But for a lot of people, particularly if you're neurodivergent, then it can become really depressing. Mm. So one of the best things to do is to stop drinking. See how you are after six months of drinking. You might find you very, very different in a very different place. Mm. Yeah. I'll
3: ask you a personal question? Mm. You seem like a very confident man. Mm. Are you sensitive to rejection?
4: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today
2: yeah i i am i'm confident because i'm confident because um, i have spent a long time a i think genuinely working on myself and b i spent a long time a lot of my life doing things that scare me and therefore, I know my mum gave me a great bit of advice. She gave me a lot of good advice in my life. She said this when I was younger. She said, "Get comfortable being uncomfortable." And I spent a life of being uncomfortable, and now I'm pretty comfortable being uncomfortable. You know, I can do things like I, you know, hosted the World Mental Health Day with the Prince and Princess of Wales, mm. and I was nervous before meeting them. But I said, "No, this is this is the discomfort you've been searching." And it became, you know, you you find the more that you do stuff that scares you, the less scary things are. You realize that you survive everything that scared you, you know, and um, I mean, it's the part of anxiety. The cruel thing about anxiety is you're afraid of something that isn't there. Fundamentally, a panic attack is a feeling of impending doom. It's horrific. I've had panic attacks as well. My panic attacks were usually and oddly related to exercise classes. I had a specific fear, I'd say almost a point of phobia, of exercise classes. Now I go exercise class every single week. Never have a panic attack now. But the panic attack is a fear of something that isn't there. It's that physiological response to the line in the room that isn't there. You're actually mm. responding physiologically as if there was a line in the room, but there isn't a line in the room. So I think the confidence comes from just just doing things over and over again. And I've realized as well in my life that very, very rarely is anyone good at something that hasn't done something for a long time and probably more accurately, people are only good, thing, are good at things because they've done something for a long time. It's like presenters in television. I've seen the best presenters fluffing lines, repeating things, do, 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 doing things over and over again. And you realize we're all human. And actually, if someone is good at something, they've practiced a lot at it. And I think that gives me confidence by proxy almost. I'm like, well, if they've become good at it, I can too. And so I think a lot of it's that. But, you know, answering a question in a very long-winded way, I think I am I, I, very sensitive have a lot of rejection and sensitivity I think that's hard in relationships hard in life I hate failing but because I hate failing mm. I, it makes me very good now I embrace failure I love failure in a way I love it's a love hate relationship I hate failing but I love it because it drives me and you think that teacher at school said don't expect a lot of him he's not gonna be a doctor I mean that was literally like you know it just I was off then you know what mm. I mean I was like right that's it I'm gonna you know I'm gonna go and do well at this and that was a rejection wasn't it? she rejected me in a sense um Uh, But I do find that hard. And that's something that through therapy, therapy has helped me a lot with that, but I do Mm -hmm. struggle with that. I struggle with, um, I struggle as well of like almost like a rejection in the sense of like, if I feel I've let myself down, that sense of rejecting myself, like I wasn't, I didn't handle that in the best way or wasn't the best version of myself. And there is a negative there that I sometimes expect 100% of myself, which is impossible And when I don't reach that, I can be very hard on myself. And that is something I've had to work, and I still Mm. continue to have to work very, very hard on. Very, very hard indeed. It's so interesting. And the reason I ask is because there's such a common
3: uh, pain point within the community, uh, sensitivity to rejection, Mm. and especially in relationships, and you've touched Mm. upon that. And I suppose if we were to ask your partner, Mm. a past partner, what you were like in a relationship, Mm. what do you think they would say?
2: I think probably even broadly looking at my relationships and to my friendships and people around me, I think you know Abby was here will say that I'm a very sensitive person. I'll go to the end of the earth for someone. I'll move mountains for them um, because I really care. I feel empathy. Like if I feel that someone else is sad or someone else has been wronged or something has happened, I mm. feel like a huge sense of I need to fix that. Maybe that's why I went into medicine. That's maybe why I, you know I did. That. That's probably a large part of why I do so much in the mental health space. That I take on all of this you know, it causes me a lot of pain actually to do the work I do. But I think that sensitivity and that desire to to do that is a huge part of it. But obviously there's negative sides. I mean, I think it is a challenge. There is a challenge with dating someone who, if you're neurotypical and someone's got ADHD, you are different. That's the whole point we're talking about. And I think that it's learning, people learning how to react with you and how for you to react with them as well as part of it. And mm. the more I've learned about myself, probably the better I am in all relationships because you learn not to be impulsive. You know, I apply a lot of things at like the 24-hour rule, things I'm worrying about, so not to be... What's the 24-hour rule? So I use this a lot in business, actually, as well, and in work. You know, if we get a, an email in asking me to be involved with a, a, a campaign or a project with, say, a charity, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, let's go and do it. But then the team go, right, well, let's give it 24 hours. Think about it tomorrow. Because actually you might be saying, yes, you really want to do it, but you've got a million things on right now. You're at capacity and you're going to end up doing a bad job of all of it. So, I mean, it's an example of then going 24 hours, going, Mm. oh, actually I would quite like to do that. But realistically, I'm also doing six other things that are similar or six things that I also need to put my attention to. And actually by taking this on, I might be putting myself in a position where I can't do this. And I I use that in, in life a lot. And also even for buying things. Impulsivity. I mean, I, I, am classic in the sense that, like, I decided when I stopped drinking, I was like, I really want to have a reward. It's a little bit the atomic Habit, habits thing of, of attaching rewards to behaviors. You know, like this is a classic one that you use to train. You, know, you train a dog, you give them treats at the end of doing an activity or whatever that you're you're pleased with. You know, the dogs learn to sit. You give them a treat you're giving that dog dopamine, the sense of reward. They're learning that if I do this, I get a good good thing happens. Mm. So, um, you know, I was like, I'm going to learn to ride motorbikes when I stop drinking. Because when I stop drinking, save loads of money, I can pay for the lessons and I can buy a bike uh, in time, whatever, with that money that I'm saving. Um, but my impulse is to buy like six bikes. <laughs> and financially, I need to very much not buy six bikes. So I have to, prevent myself, because I would, I'd go, if I decide I'm going to do a hobby, I'll take it to the 10th, 10th, 15th degree of like, everything, I have to then do Mm. all of it, I'm like fully into that hobby, you know, and I think that's something I've had to manage, because then what happens is I overstretch myself, or I buy things that six months later, I'm like, I shouldn't have bought that, that was silly you know, and that's something I apply. Mm. So the 24 hour rule applies well to like short things. But I think when it comes to like bikes, <laughs> it's, it's, it, I try and give it like two yeah. or three weeks. Cause otherwise I would, I'd, I'd convinced myself to buy a motorbike that I can't afford mm. and I don't need. <laughs> and they're, they're like, Why have I bought this? <laughs> I think you might've just saved loads of listeners from, from,
3: from, impending burnout because like you said it's such a common thing we overcommit we get excited we, say we yes. get excited don't we and then we're, we're yeah. quickly over that honeymoon period but we've said yes to that project and now we've got 10 things to do and actually now because we're 24 hours later or a week yeah. later our excitement's on a shiny yeah. new project but we've said yes to 10 yeah. things yesterday yeah. and that's just going to lead to burnout more anxiety because then yeah. you've got to probably go back and say I'm really sorry you've got to let people down yeah. which is a nightmare for people with ADHD.
2: I um, I was given a great piece of advice by Jake Humphries on a Stompcast. I recorded it with him the other day and I thought this is fantastic. I think this is really useful and I'm going to share it. Um, what he said was that if someone asks you to do something, fast forward to the day that you'd be doing it and ask yourself, if you imagine on that day, would you want to be doing it? Yes or no? So a classic case would be like, someone would be like, Alex, can you come to this event in six months time? We're talking about this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll do it because it's in six months. It's delayed pain, right? It's not something you're gonna have to face. Zoom forward to that day and imagine going to that event. If you want to go, brilliant, you should be saying yes, you made the right decision because you'd want to go. But if you think in six months time, you're like, oh no, actually in six months, I'd be like, oh, I've taken on too much. I really can't do this. I don't want to do this then it helps you say no to things that you you that you that actually wouldn't want to do. Mm-hmm. So I'd really give that a go. And if you're questioning something, zoom forward to the day. Imagine imagine going to it or completing that task or imagine a situation where you, you are doing what you're going to promise to do. Would you be happy with it? It could be a weekend away with friends. Like they're going, off, yeah, 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 I'll come with you, but you actually don't want to go. You mm-hmm. don't like the place or we don't like what they're going to do. They're going paintballing and you hate paintballing. Imagine going paintballing and then decide whether you want to go or not. I think mm. it's a great way. I mean, some of those hacks are really, really useful. You can't change the way that your brain is, but you can certainly use things to help, you know, illuminate areas that mm. perhaps otherwise can go astray. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's such a simple thing just to put some
3: distance between the stimuli, stimulus, and the and the response, I guess. Mm. I suppose the same could be applied to rejection-sensitive dysphoria, is, is that perhaps you have a reaction to rejection. And actually, if you put time between that and your re- response, you've actually given yourself time to process mm. process the decision and, and to make a better,
2: yeah. better better decision. And also with rejection sensitivity dysphoria, it's realizing what are rege- real rejections and what rejections are in your mind. Mm, so a lot of times in re- like relationships, people can be like, oh, that person's rejecting me or they don't like me or whatever it is. You've actually... Created a rejection. Whether mm. rejection is real or not doesn't matter. It's how you respond to it, isn't it? It doesn't matter. Everything's in your head anyway. i mean, It's such a thing that spins you out, really. When you realise the entire everything is your reality is what goes on between your two ears. That's it, right? That, that's your reality. The stimulus is outside. You know, it, w- the way you react to it is is what matters. Mm. And you know, we can't control what happens in the outside world. Nothing beyond our own bodies is within our control. Nothing, literally, nothing at all. You can only control your action and what you're doing and what you're reacting to something. And that can be an external reaction, i.e. how you react to your partner or your friend or your colleague, you know, and being, you know, behaving and being the person you want to be in that situation. And then the other part of that reaction is what happens internally. How are you speaking to yourself? Are you putting yourself down saying, oh, I'm not good enough for that person or I'm in this job, I'm not good enough for this job. You know, people reject themselves from scenarios that they are not being rejected from. But in doing so, then become rejected because of their mm. behaviors. You know, so it's recognizing that within yourself and dealing with those, you know, they say a lot of the time relationships, the biggest battle in the relationship is, you know, dealing with the demons in your own mind. If you can mm. deal with those, you're, you're, half, you know, you're at least half the way there. It might not even be a response
3: to the, re- the rejection or perceived rejection that's happening in front of you in the moment. It might, that what happens in front of you actually might be a reminder, or it might snap you back sure. to, a, to a trauma mm. or to a, an event that happened... Mm. in your early years or not necessarily in your early years but a significant event and actually the event that's happened to you right there right then you're not responding to that you're you're responding to a memory Mm. that that event has
2: has brought up Mm. well of course you know our brains our thoughts are a highlight reel of what's happened to us mixed together and jumbled together to create a perceived potential for the future our thoughts can only look backwards right everything we look forward is a projection based on our past. It's not a reality, is it? Our thoughts tell us like, you know, there's a great example of one that I, that I heard. I think it really, I think it's a really great way of looking at this. Um, you know, you're at a bar with your girlfriend. A uh, girlfriend goes to the, the bar and she's talking to a guy and they're, they're laughing, like having a hug and stuff. You're like, oh, I thought we wanted to get a drink. What are they doing? Who's she talking to over there? Um, and they come back and you go, oh, like, who was that? Like, And they're like, oh, that's my cousin. Right, So you've created, maybe you've been rejected in the past, maybe you've been experienced where someone has been unfaithful to you, whatever it is, mm. and you look back on your past and then that jumbled in your mind, your mind projects what's happening in front of you. Obviously, it doesn't know what's happening. It's just a projection of that. Then they come and sit down and it was, was nowhere near what, what you thought it was. So I think it's just being aware of that is that our brains will always take a negative skew because a negative skew is seen as protective. Mm. Like it's psychologically protective to have a negative skew and it will only jumble stuff up from the past anyway. And the other big thing is I've learned is to really get this into our minds is that our thoughts are not reality and our thoughts are not the truth. We equate thought with truth. What you're thinking isn't the truth. It's just a thought. I hate to tell you, like it's just the thought and you've got to tell yourself that as well. It's like, it's just a thought. Mm. You don't have to engage with thoughts, you don't have to believe thoughts, you don't have to follow thoughts along, thoughts can just pass. And I would say the best thing you can do is when a negative thought comes up, watch it, thank the thought and let it go. When you depower negative emotions and you shine a light on them for what they are, just thoughts, irrelevance really in your mind, and you let them go, what you replace that with is clarity. And from clarity, you make good judgment. Most of the breakthroughs in science, most of the breakthroughs in the world have come from a place of clarity. People are sat under trees, hit in the head by an apple. They're out walking. I certainly think most of my best ideas that have come to fruition have become successful campaigns or whatever it's been has come from a place of clarity. They've never come from me worrying about something. How creative can you be when you worry? You can't, Mm. can you? You're just jumbles of nonsense in your
3: head. So interesting when you said you you instantly default to the negative because that's a Protection. Mm-hmm. It's like when someone asks you, say your boss asks you for a quick chat without any context, and you instantly catastrophize. Mm-hmm. You instantly think you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. When in actual fact, it's probably just something completely harmless. And when that kind of thing happens to me now, I never let someone put me in that position. So if mm-hmm. someone asks me for a, for a quick chat or a, a meeting, I'm instantly like, okay, just can have a summary? Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, yes. my mind is going to catastrophize and think that my world's ending... Until I get some reassurance that it's not, mm. especially if it's, there's a, some time between the invitation mm. to a, for a meeting, just sticking to that example, and the meeting taking place, where I then find out mm. that that actually it's it's a harmless meeting, But yeah. of course my mind catastrophizes. I don't let people put that put me in that situation mm. anymore.
2: It's a great idea, and you can just say to someone, I think being really open about it and say, you know, just that this doesn't cause anxiety or worry for me. Can you just give me some room? Mm. Most of the time, be like, oh my gosh, no, there's nothing to worry about. It's just about this project that we've got coming out I mm. want you to have a look at or whatever you know so just mm. bringing that forward and just highlighting to someone so that they so they're not they know because a lot of the time if people think oh my gosh it's causing anxiety they don't want you to be mm. worried or whatever you know that's a great tip actually good idea Alex I ask all my guests for mm.
3: an item in their life that most represents mm. ADHD <laughs> this is truly fascinating I've can't wait to hear the explanation <laughs> you said a hairdryer
2: mm-hmm. um yeah, I'll give it to you, because I'm truly... And actually, the funny story behind this is this is the exact hairdryer, the, the mode of one that kind of relaxes me sound-wise the most. And I actually have a hairdryer tattoo. Yeah, that's a funny one for you. You actually
3: do have a tattoo. Yeah, that's, that's, a that's actually It's a very
2: retro-style tattoo, which I think is kind of fun. Um, yeah. And the reason I have a hairdryer tattoo, or the reason that you've presented a hairdryer is because the white noise from this really relaxes me. And Hmm. I said to you um, earlier in the episode that as a child, I didn't sleep uh, well at all. And the one time that I would sleep as my mum would be as you would be drying your hair after a shower or whatever, and then I'd fall asleep. And the white noise is amazing for calming. So white noise and brown noise, which are the common as well. um, The reason that we find it was believed that we find it so relaxing is that um, when we're in the womb, this placental blood flow and placental blood flow, if you think of the whoosh, whoosh noise it makes, it's white noise, it's brown noise. And it like it, it's very relaxing mm. to the kind of primitive brain. So as a child with ADHD, it really, really helped. And throughout my life, I've just found the white noise just so relaxing. Um, your electricity bill will be really expensive when I hair <laughs> dry all the time. So like if you use YouTube or there's loads of apps now that have a white noise and brown noise. I really recommend brown noise. It's slightly more, it's a calmer version, I think. I prefer brown noise. Um, that can really, really help people sleep. And a lot of the time, it's very common amongst this ADHD is needing something to really help us unwind. So in the evening time, if you're looking to sleep, um, you know, stick on a, a, a white noise playlist or a hairdryer noise, mm. and you'll find that it can really relax you. But yeah, I just thought it was funny to have the tattoo because I was like, all my life, it's been the kind of comfort for me um, in times of stress or anxiety, or even just unwinding. It's mm. self-care for me. It's part of my self-care. Uh, and so, yeah, this, this hairdryer has definitely helped me. It's quite funny. I thought, I assumed, I was like, did you get this from my house? <laughs> uh, very, very impressive. You got hold of it, but it's just funny. that's the exact one that I, I yeah, find use. It's so interesting because I, I'm in my
3: flat. I, I next to my desk, I have a lamp, and it makes this humming noise, mm. like quite low but noticeable. Um, to the point where sometimes I've had someone over and we've done some work together, and they've said, "Can you turn that off?" It's quite irritating. Mm. But actually, for me, I wasn't even aware, but mm. I noticeably missed it. Mm. when 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 i had to turn it off mm. so i guess that's kind of the same thing it was a very like very like low yeah. humming noise and i think actually that's enough to just give my brain a little bit to to, to stabilize the chatter mm. Mm. that's going on in my head and to enable,
2: mm. enable me to really focus mm. on on mm. what I'm doing on my computer. Because I mean, other people use things like, um, you know, rain sounds and stuff. I think it's finding what works for you, but mm. I think most people will have a sound or frequency relaxing. Argu- arguably, music isn't that different. I mean, music is a sound, it's a noise that relaxes you. People often have certain artists that they find helps them just unwind. Classical music has mm. classically been one that people use to relax and you know, um, you know, when they wanted to be creative or they want to tap into flow or they just want to like just zone out for a bit, they listen to classical music. So it's not so different. It's just a mm. sound. But um, people laugh about it. But a lot of people you like I can tell you, <laughs> you now. On the table there's you a lot of people. I'm sure they are people can put it in the comments on the on the yeah. YouTube whatever. Like how yeah. many, yeah, or in there's your sure. socials, like, do you listen to white noise? Have, do you find hair dryers relaxing? Mm. I mean, people like Wayne Rooney, I mean, famously and as I understand if it's true, you know you had the um hoover on to sleep or the dyson or whatever you uses to to sleep, mm. so you know people do do it. Are you able to share your journey with us that you've had with a d h d medication hmm sure um i i mean so I was diagnosed with a d h d uh it'll be so it was about maybe 20 months ago, 20 months ago-ish. And the psychiatrist very sensibly said, look, let's work on the stuff that we should work on first. Alcohol was clearly the first thing um, to think about. Uh, and then let's optimize everything. So exercise using all the different things. and Let's see what we get with with medication. If, if it's required, if it's useful and so on. Um, and yeah, so uh, I personally find medication, particularly as so I use a short-acting a medication, short-acting stimulant, helpful for focus and concentration, particularly if there's tasks that are necessary, but perhaps things that don't stimulate my ADHD brain as much. So if I need to do particular studies or something that I find hard to concentrate off, if I need to do an essay and I really need to do it, but I I can't seem to click into it or get, get into it, that's really helpful. But actually, interestingly, I now kind of... I use it as and when. You know, some people will use... Um, I don't know what your experience or whether you take medication, but some people use medication every single day, and that's obviously, obviously, obviously fine. Um, some people use it uh, occasionally or regularly, or sometimes people use it infrequently or not at all. I'd say I'm probably now in the place where I use it sometimes. and It's more about what's going on in my life that matters. And I think the reason this is, is that I've moved very much towards um, making my life more friendly to the way my brain works, so I have a lot more blank space time where I'll create space to do I know what tasks I need to do but the way in which I engage in those tasks and get them done is down to me so there's a lot more autonomy mm-hmm. rather than having days that are so diarized if that makes sense and that has really helped me I still need to do the same stuff I still need to get it done by roughly the similar time frames but the way in which I engage in those tasks are very different and so what that means is when I'm in a very productive state I smash through 20 different things in like an hour when I'm in an unproductive state I'll go for a walk and I think that has really helped me flow, ebb and flow with my energy level. And I'd actually really advise that for anyone that's neurotypical as well. You know, it, it, sometimes you're fighting against the tide when you're really not able to concentrate. Think, why? When's the last time I went for a walk? Do I need just to have half an hour to listen to music? Maybe I need to come back to this task tomorrow. Maybe I should do a different task that's more exciting for me right now. Come back to this current task when I'm more able to. And I found those techniques really helpful and therefore medication I've not needed as often or as much, but I do think that probably just depends on what's going on in my, in my life. If I had to work a nine to five job in an office, then I think I'd be medicated. And that's a sad truth. I think I would have to be medicated because I don't think I could engage with that environment. Whereas I am effectively my own boss, I've got a great team around me, but I have created a life, which I think is very, very useful for someone that's mm. not neurotypical because I can, I can cre- create my team, time and use my time in the way that my brain finds most Mm. useful or helpful that's so interesting because i feel exactly the same
3: i don't take adhd medication and i think if i had to work in an office as you said i I most likely would Mm. because i think i'm in a position a very privileged position that i'm able to wake up when i want take as many breaks Mm. as i want work whenever i want most of my work happens in between midnight and 4 a.m um and most of my ideas come like similar to what you said, when I'm out having a walk or, or running. If I was, mm. I had to go to an office, then I think it would be very different. Because mm. um, I've tried to force myself to sit down at my desk for two or three hours. And my girlfriend laughs all the time because I'm going to my office, five minutes later I'm out. I go in there for 10 minutes, and then I'm out again. I'm all over the place. But I get the work done and, it, it, and I get it done to a really good standard. But it might take me
2: five hours. And perhaps it
3: takes a neurotypical person an hour to do that. But, I mean, but equally,
2: the opposite is true. Like sometimes when I'm in a flow state, I get a ridiculous amount of stuff done. Like I'm recording content or creating, I'm like, bam, bam, bam. Like I am a very, very productive person. I think mm. I do get a, a lot done. I mean, I, I do. But equally, but I think that happens in the right states. I can equally mm. get nothing done. You know, so there's... It's, and I think it can be very frustrating when you're in that state where you can't get something done, isn't it? That's what's frustrating. But if you kind of... I think it's finding that what works for you. And if you do, then I think you can just get mm. into those really great flow states. Um... But I think you know, it's important to say, I think medication does have a key role. I definitely found it incredibly beneficial in periods of time, specifically where I've been like really struggling with it, or there's certain things I need to do or whatever. I think medication does have a really amazing role. And there's people that I've spoken to in the community in the ADHD community who said that it's changed their lives. And I think for me, like, I can certainly see that. I think I can certainly see you know, the role that it can play. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't I've got nothing bad to say about it. I think it's, I think it's working out what it works. So it's like anything in life. You know, there's lots of options out there. Mm. See what works for you. Uh, engage in the things that work for you. And then if things don't work, don't take that as a personal... Not, I think sometimes with medications or people think, oh, if that hasn't worked for me, therefore that's it, I'm, I'm screwed. Don't feel that way. That's a very... Your brain will obviously do that because we've talked about the negative view of the brain. Don't have that view. Um, sometimes you need to try different medications to find what works for you. Or, uh, like we've said, perhaps it's looking at the life and what's going on around you. A lot of workplaces are getting much better at understanding that people do need to be allowed flexibility and autonomy at how they engage and how they deal with ADHD, how they become most effective. Um, And I think the more that we moved in that direction, the better. I mean, I'm doing a master's at the moment, um, public mental health masters at King's, uh, and they know I have ADHD and they have made um, uh, changes, you know, to the way that I engage both in exam, but also the coursework to allow me greater degree of flexibility to, to, to get it to get it done and i think that is really good i think the more the world is like has that view and realizes that we are very capable people we just need to do things in our own way i think the better and, and i think workplaces can do that workplaces can be really supportive if they choose to be
3: yes absolutely i mean simple accommodations for neurodiversity can make a massive difference i think essentially judge people on their outcomes rather than their processes and if they want to start work half an hour later or earlier in order to not get overwhelmed Mm -hmm. by the rush hour traffic, Mm -hmm. then that's just, you know, a simple accommodation Mm -hmm. like that is actually a a basic... It's
2: really interesting because you said that you work at night, whereas I am the complete opposite. So I am a... a, My mornings are my favourite part of the day. I love... I'm up at 6... I get up at 6.30 every day, and I get up at the same time every day because I find that gives me great stability. Um, uh, uh, And actually, for anyone that struggles sleeping, the first thing to try... Well... Two things before you do that: Do you drink caffeine and do you have alcohol? Get rid of. It. If you don't sleep, don't drink caffeine. Don't drink alcohol. If you're bad, if you're a bad sleeper, um, the next thing I find helpful um, is to have to get up at the same time every day. It's very hard to control while you fall asleep. It's very easy to control when you get up, and the brain will lock in on the time you get up, and eventually it will find the rhythm, even if you're knackered. I mean, the, the natural thing to do is if you're is a tangent now, but if you are had a bad night's sleep. Like I've, I've often had bad night's sleeps, right? I had a bad night's sleep. The um, natural thing is to try, well, i lie in a bit more. Yeah. That's the worst thing to do. If you're tired, get up at the same time, have a bit of a nap in the afternoon and try again the next night. Don't try and compensate with lions. that actually completely messes up the sleep cycle. Just get up at the same time. But anyway, back to what we were saying, um, it's, um, it's interesting because you, you're productive productive clearly as a night owl, or what people call a night owl, whereas I'm a morning, get up, throughout my day. I like to be in bed. I like to be asleep before 10. Like I'm literally asleep before 10, like most nights, very rare. On New Year's Eve, I was asleep at 10, Mm. I think. You know, I'm not a nighttime person, but that's the thing. We're all different. Even within the neurodivergent community, we're still going to have huge diversity in how people engage with life and how they do things. So, you know, lean into what works for you. My brother is not diagnosed with ADHD. He's going through the process at the moment. I think it's quite likely, but obviously he needs to be diagnosed and, and have the assessment properly but he's very different to me he's much more like you are very very creative at that time of night up late doesn't want to be up early in the morning that's fine mm. you know work with what you listen to your body i mean we'd all be a lot happier if we listened to our bodies and understood the way that our bodies engage with the world and follow that as intuitively as we can obviously while keeping some of the things we said before you know go to the gym, don't listen to your brain going, I can't be bothered. But I mean, generally speaking, if you're effective at midnight, then great, Mm. engage with that.
3: After your diagnosis, I I read that you said that you always, you try to hide and conform. And I was wondering if you intuitively listen to your body now
2: and I guess mask Mm. less? Yes, absolutely. I'm just now me. I think for a long time, I was just trying to be, because it all came down to what happened when I was at school, being told, mm, you know, he's probably not going to make that much of himself effectively. I then was like, I either conformed become, I didn't know what neurotypical meant then, but let's, let's add that kind of full mm. process. I effectively was thinking either whether I'm neurotypical or I'm screwed. So I forced myself back into the classroom. I forced myself to great detriment actually. Like, trying to be someone you're not is is, is a a terrible form of self-harm. Exhausting as well. It's one of the most exhausting, awful forms of self-harm is being someone you aren't. Anyone knows that. You know, like you start a university and people try and reinvent themselves, then you go back to who you are and actually it's exhausting that period of time when you're trying to be someone else. So it was very tiring. School was very, very difficult trying to do it the neurotypical way. uh, and I think the, the sense of relief since I was diagnosed of, oh, I'm just going to be me, like the acceptance of that was brilliant. Like, I don't get annoyed at myself on unproductive days. I wanted to write some of the essay yesterday. Um, I'm doing the essay right now and uh, doing an essay right now, and I wanted to do some yesterday. I was tired yesterday. I wasn't in a productive space. I knew that I needed that recharge. And like today, now I feel productive and I'm going to go and really bash out some of that essay this afternoon. Whereas in the past, I'd have got really annoyed at myself. So that negative self-talk would have kicked in and be like, "Ah, oh, see, other people will be able to do this. I'm just lazy. I'm not being disciplined. You reframe a lot of your language and a lot of the way you interact with yourself. You become a lot kinder. I become a lot kinder to yourself. Your positivity on the world is better. Mm. You know, I see the world in a more positive way. And one of the best things I do each day now to try and set my day, you know, adding on top of the cold shower and all that stuff, which I find very really helpful, is I start with gratitude. I wake up every day. You know, we started... um I launched a, a, a men's mental fitness app called Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. I started with beer grills, Paul McCann, some amazing experts in academia uh, as well, a fantastic psychiatrist and team that's been involved with that. And it's all about using um, uh, meditation, mindfulness, mind hacking to improve men's mental fitness. It's an area I'm so passionate about. And using that in the morning to get your brain into a grateful, optimistic, positive state of mind, like the difference it makes to your day is unbelievable so anyone listening whether you're neurotypical or, you're, or you've got adhd give that mm. and give metal a try we're really proud of what we're achieving there but you know since i've since i've started really focusing on that and thinking about mindset in the day the way you interact with the rest of the world completely changed. i mean you said about the positivity or the confidence that you see whatever i'm i'm more or less confident than anyone else really but i've just learned the confident mindset. And when you start learning how to be confident, you're able to be more confident, mm. you know. And and I think that work, using using the science, using metal, using mind hacking, using uh, you know, uh, the kind of techniques I've learned have really really helped me in all those fields. I think
3: every week I ask my Instagram mm. community to, to to share one of their mm. their woes that they mm-hmm. that comes up in their ADHD life, and and I read it to my guest, and we see if yeah. there's relatability, and. Um, Right, let's, gosh, yeah, I think this is a, a very relatable one. Mm. We're only three weeks into 2024, mm. and I've already got three parking tickets. Always forget to pay them within the time period, and then they double. Gosh, how many parking tickets? Is that, is that a thing? Is that a Yeah, way I've, had that. I've,
2: I've had that in the past, that's for sure. Um, it, where you kind of put things off. You know, the the best thing with that bit of advice is to deal with things now. You know, um, one of the biggest things that I've learned is that, that, that the sphere of influence on life is very important. So whenever there's something that could cause anxiety or does cause anxiety or worry, Go sphere of influence. Is this in my sphere of influence to deal with right now? If it is, deal with it immediately. Let nothing but an emergency get in your way of dealing with this right now. If it isn't, let it go. With a parking ticket, you picked it up, you've seen it, pay it, pay it immediately, and and have it done and dusted. Um, we do it a lot. We know we do uh, with ADHD. Mm. Other things are more shiny or interesting or more whatever. Just deal with it in the moment. And it is one of those things. There's some things where reality the world you know they don't i don't think they have a system to be accommodating for people with adhd that we have having to gain to deal with something that is what it is and the best way to deal with that specific thing is just to do it immediately and i would say there are examples of that in life where we just need to learn that and that's Mm. just practice right just focus on it uh, uh, and deal with it pay it and and be done Mm. with it because it is really annoying it is. Re- it is really annoying, isn't it? When those things happen, I don't know about you, but I've really learned that just just sort it now immediately, and uh, and then it's done with.
3: Yeah. No. Absolutely. And it's great advice. It's, it there's two bits. So that essentially just do it as soon as you need to do something, do it because we will forget about it. Yeah. And then we'll get the only we'll only get reminded of it when we get that letter through the post saying we mm. haven't paid it, and then it's doubled. So that's that ADHD tax, mm. which which strikes, but also if you're doing a bit of work or you're doing something, you're doing it, and then you get an idea, something shiny, a new thought, a question that you just you're compelled to know the answer, rather than going down the Google rabbit hole or go on YouTube, just just write, write, it, write, it, down. write it down. Like park it. And save it for later.
2: I always have ideas when I'm running or walking. I have mm. to write them down. My notes is full of just random ideas. And a lot of them are actually, I think, quite good ideas. Some of them are terrible ideas. But I write them down now and I deal with what the task is I'm doing now. It's a really, really good piece of advice. Write it down. The other one that really annoys me, I wonder whether people relate to this, is just like I cannot remember certain things. Like my own mobile number, I had to change my number um, like two years ago or whatever. Um, uh, and basically i changed it it's taken me two years to learn my new number and it's rather embarrassing um abby my assistant here, she knows how annoying it is for me that i cannot remember even now i have to really work at it to think about what my number mm. is to tell someone then you have to be like oh i've got a new number like let me just check it sorry but you know in your side like it's been two years it's mm. very embarrassing the other one is like dates i can't remember my parents dates of birth can't remember my brother's dates of birth like i really struggle with that and actually in relationships you know People can are like, why can't you arguments? remember my birthday? Just, I'm like, I, I can't remember, I just can't. And like, people think it's because you don't care about it, but it's just not the way the brain functions. Mm. Like my brain doesn't, you know, people, you know, I used to work obviously in the hospital and, uh, and I remember working on the wards, uh, on like care of the elderly wards. And we'd have patients in there for weeks who'd been in the hospital and they'd have like 30 patients. And I could remember every blood test results pretty much. And I'd remember like a week's worth for each patient, which is, you know, quite a lot to remember but my brain would decide that that is something it's going to remember everything of. I remember the potassium like five days in a row for like every patient. Mm. But I then can't remember like, you know, someone's name. That's, you know, someone's in front of us, like, I've met you, saying, I can't remember your name. Or, you know, that, mm. that is, that's happened to me a lot in life. And it is very frustrating. I remember certain things to the end. I love my cars, for example. And there's mm. a point where I could tell someone the 060 of every single car, production car, pretty much that was made. So you check me, I remember, I can't now. You know, my brain decides that's really something it wants to know. And I think that is very frustrating. So I'm sure people yeah. do, do you find, can you remember numbers of that? Are you good with like dates, numbers? Numbers, numbers?
3: awful. Dates, awful. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's anniversaries is the main thing. And family members' birthdays um, yeah. is always a point of conflict, especially anniversaries and relationships and <laughs> names I'm awful with. You You have the same name as me, so that was an easy uh, one. Yeah, but yeah. I, I'm terrible. I'll meet someone, shake their hand. They'll tell me their name. There's not a chance I'll remember yeah. that. But I'll know that under my bed. I know where my bracelet is. It's next to that bowl, underneath <laughs> that white T-shirt in the corner, next to my whatever. You know, I know where silly things are. But day to day, important stuff, anniversaries.
2: That's why i rubbish up. I think I. I wonder. I actually, it's a good question. Are ADHD as good at pub, like pub quizzes? Because I'm awful at pub quizzes. I'm awful I have at very. Public... Are you good at them?
3: No, awful, awful, absolutely and awful. Specific
2: knowledge. I'll be like so good at like mm. there's something there's a topic that I know but I'll know it like I was I've always found like God, very interesting, 9-11 to be like you know what I remember growing up and like 9-11 happening and it was just like a whoa this is a crazy thing that's happened and I became really I'd say almost obsessively wanting to know about it because it was such a big point in my childhood it's like that's happened it was crazy right everyone mm. around the world remembers where they were and I knew everything virtually there was to be known about 9-11. I would say in terms of what was in public discourse, I watched every YouTube video, every documentary, read most of the books, read Condoleezza Rice's, the books about Condoleezza Rice, the books about all the conspiracies, everything, I read all of it Um, and I'd remember all of it. But then if there's another topic that's like, even a show I've been watching loads, but I'm not, my brain doesn't decide it wants to know that I can't Hmm. remember anything about it at all. And it's just like, it's either all, it's all or nothing almost, isn't it? Very frustrating. I always say I'm the worst person to have on a pub quiz team. I have a, I
3: have a very narrow lane of knowledge. But outside of that, I really struggle to maintain inf- information. Mm. Also, if I'm having a conversation, like word retrieval can be a real issue. Mm. Stuff I know, but in the moment when I'm talking to someone, I, I will just have a brain malfunction and I won't remember a word that I've used every day for mm. my entire life. Mm. Mm. And then it will come back to me. After that social mm. encounter's finished, I'm like, oh damn, that happened again. I look stupid in front of that person, but mm. I know mm. that word. Mm. It's a word I use every day. But in that encounter, it just left me. I couldn't retrieve it from my brain.
2: And use it, yeah. It's a funny one. That's definitely when I find those annoying. I, find, I hate pub quizzes. I hate trying to remember dates mm. and birthdays and things like that. But then yeah, I can remember I remember right, you know, studying for exams and I, because I found medicine like so fascinating and shiny, I'd read a book and I remember, but like I'd read the Oxford handbook and I could remember the color, the page number, the pictures in it, the order that the mm. diagnosed, the order the treatment was in. And like, I have a very creative, very calculating. I'm very good at working out problems. So it was great for like med school exams. I mean, it was fantastic for, but then, yeah, I then couldn't tell you what my mum's <laughs> of birth was. So, but I don't know. I think mm. arguably it's handy to be to know the medicine better maybe. Yeah. I was like, Mom, look, you know, I don't know your date of birth, but hopefully I can remember some yeah. stuff to there help are bits with
3: uh, that come with
2: ADHD, like we've just spoken about. That. Write it down. That's the biggest thing is write, write it, down. it down. Just you know, it have happy notes yeah. section, write down important dates mm-hmm. thing. Use your diary, use calendars, use diaries. If you if I put all my social occasions now in the diary, they just go in there and there's reminders on them. I I I put if I need an anniversary, that will go in the diary. If you get ideas that you needed to you want to do something but while you've got an important task, just write it down just write it down and finish the task. And if there are those things like parking tickets, tax returns, just do them. I know there's no there's no clever, sexy way of getting around it. You just need to do it. Mm. Just have a mindset that there are certain things that can't be delayed. Deal with them immediately, and you'll you 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 will get through it. And you'll learn. You'll start learning to be able to do that. Mm. You know, there's only a few things you have to do neurotypically. Probably paying parking tickets, annoying, is a very neurotypical thing you have to do properly.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so. I also think like also not being ashamed. To to do things that might fall outside of what society deems to be normal. Mm. For example, I always used to think that being an adult, an organized adult, meant that I used to use, I had to use my calendar in my mobile phone. But I'm awful because I forget to look at my calendar in my phone. Mm. So I forget meetings, my phone goes off. Alex, where are you? Oh, I've missed another appointment. But Mm. actually, now I use a big, colorful, Mm whiteboard on my desk that has loads of colour-coded magnets Brilliant. and two years ago I probably would have been ashamed mm. to let anyone see that because it looks quite childish mm, mm, and it, mm. it kind of contradicts uh, the image that I wanted to give out but actually now if it works for me then it then it works yeah. that's what I need in order for my
2: life to function that big colourful mm. whiteboard with. well it's with, what you said earlier on isn't it it's the whole point that we need to focus more on output than process mm. focus on the output it doesn't really matter does it you know like However, you get something done. If you get it done, that's great. Like that's it. I mean, I use. Um, I've got the calendars on, so Buzz is my watch now. Mm. So I'll know from the watch that's on there. Well, there's reminders there. We're all very fortunately, I have a team that kind of kind yeah. of can help make sure I'm in places on time. So fair enough. I have slight advantage there, I guess. But it, it, using little tricks and mm. stuff like that, they they do they do help. Try and use technology in your favour. We often bash technology a lot, and we should. Uh, but there's a lot of technology things that can be really helpful. Reminders and things like that are definitely things that you can use. Mm. Like alarms for stuff. Just stick an alarm, write it down, use your notes functions, and a lot of that can help. And then use the you know old school stickers on the wall, like notes and stuff like that. Write it down, bam, when mm. it goes. What's the most impulsive thing you've ever done? God, how long? You, I don't know. What is the most? It's like, <laughs> impossible, like impossible to say. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I've done so many. It's hard. To, it's actually quite hard to tease apart impulsivity and just drive. Sometimes very hard. Mm. I'm a very driven person. And I think impulse, you need to have intuition attached to drive to really be, I think, successful. And it's very hard to separate that from impulsivity. Um, was going on Love Island impulsive? I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know if that really was maybe um, I think I have a real like go for it attitude I like, generally uh, my biggest fear in life is to regret not having lived I think people are very very worried about things and, and different things in life my big worry is is not having lived like being that 80 year old looking back thinking damn it you know because ultimately as cheesy as it sounds you get one life we're all doing life the first time I want to leave thinking I've lived many lives and I think I have you know I have lived a lot of different lives already you know I'm 32, 33 and I feel something I'm proud of is that I've explored a lot of different kind of ways of living things do, to do and I'm not afraid to try things and I've been really bad at stuff I've tried mm. things that haven't really haven't worked I fail all the time I still do quite literally I failed an essay on my masters <laughs> I had to reset it but I'm not afraid really of those failures and, and I think that drives me to try lots of different stuff um, but you know honestly like when I passed my motorbike test I tried to buy like four bikes and I was like really don't have the finances to be buying four bikes but like that's a classic kind of thing that I mm-hmm. would try and do um trying to think abs what other things do you think I've been impulsive out of interest actually can you think what's my what would you say my most impulsive thing is Ab is my assistant I think it'd be a lot to do with spend like yeah spending, spending. oh shops problems. is a nightmare actually so we'll walk past like lunar lemon I'll go in and and I'll do a lot of damage, and then I'll take some stuff back because Abby will send me back. She was like, <laughs> Abby's my assistant. She'd like go back there and take that back. I'm like, okay, I'll go back. I think that is spending, and it is a huge thing though because, and you know, it's we joke about it, but it is a real worry with finances that you can get yourself. And a university, it was a nightmare because I was on mm. a, you know, I was on a like every hour student loan, all that kind of stuff. You're living off not very much. And yeah, when you're impulsive and you go and buy a hoodie that you didn't need and you spent a load of money on it, that could be your food for the week. So it was a real, you know, that was a real stress. I think, yeah, I think probably finances, I guess, just impulsivity with that. But I'm, I am better at that now, I think. Am I, am I better or not? You make me better at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a common...
3: Uh... It's so relatable, and I think everyone listening will relate to the impulsivity,
2: especially the spending. Admittedly, not having someone that, that's your assistant <laughs> trying to say and tell you not to spend money, that's not relatable, but... Um, yeah, I think I think it's realizing what your impulsivities are. Mm. I think allow yourself some freedom. I think being uh, imp- like spontaneous is good. I think impulsivity usually implies a negative consequence. I think, and I think that's when you got to attach it to how much of it is actually just going for things you're driven, and how many things are actually causing you negative results, or like mm. imp- like that impulsivity is causing you a problem. And I think that's what you've got to tease apart. It's not a problem to go for stuff in life and try new things and be adventurous. But I think if you're doing things and you're putting yourself at risk, whatever that might be, mm. you know, that is that is that that is isn't an example. Like you know, risk-taking behavior, I guess, is where, you know, that's mm. not a good thing.
3: Well, I think that's why you see people with ADHD being so successful in business, a lot of them. I think ADHD, well, ADHD people are 400% more likely to be an entrepreneur. And it is because of that
2: impulsivity. Is that risk-taking? Yeah, well, I mean, I left medicine to do everything. I guess there you go, I mean, I, I don't know if it's impulsive, but I kind of left medicine to go and take a tangent. I've, I've kind of returned, I returned very quickly to medicine, but, and I'm now, you know, a public health doctor, effectively, mm. and that's what I do, right? I, you know, even the StompCast, you know, we get people walking four to five kilometers a week listening to the StompCast. Mm. That improves their heart, their minds. You know, we think about how many episodes we've done. We've got a lot of people doing very healthy things. Mm. Um, So I practice public health, that's what I do. Um, But I took a very wide turn out of it. I'm not even just talking about like, Love Island. I just mean like, you know, it's quite an unusual path that I've taken. And I guess some would say it was risky. Some would Mm. say it was foolish. Some would say it was even stupid. But um, yeah, I think perhaps, I don't think I'd do that if it wasn't for ADHD. Mm. Would I have taken the turn that I took? Probably not.
3: Just finally, Alex, if you could go back in time and give younger version of you, the, the little kid who felt different, mm. some advice with the knowledge of ADHD you have now, what mm. would you tell the younger version of yourself?
2: Yeah. I think probably that uh, spending even a day pretending or trying to be someone that you're not is a day of your life wasted, that actually just own who you are. Uh, and actually that you're, what you perceive now to be your greatest weakness will almost invariably be your biggest strength in years to come. I hated being sensitive. I think my sensitivity has been a huge part of who I am. Like it's a huge part of my innate drive to try and make a difference in mental health because I care. So I think that's a good thing. I also find i used to hate being tall. I love being tall now. It's great. I love being tall. I used to hate it. So own those things that, that you, that make you different own your differences. And I think as soon as you start being proud of who you are and you start harnessing your strengths, you understand some of your limitations, but you're kind to yourself for those, you live a lot more. And at the end of the day, we've got one life. You are who you are. Whatever package you've been given in your life and your skills and all that kind of stuff, you know, that's where your starting point, but it doesn't define where you're going to end up. You know, just go for things, try and enjoy it as well. Life is so short. You know, that, that idea that so you know, commonly said but the journey not the destination is probably one of the best bits of advice even though it's the most Cliched and overused, perhaps. It's so true. You know, it's not it's not graduating from med school that is the is the beauty or the goal or whatever. It's actually the process of of that experience that you've had. You know, doing the podcast, it's like, okay, cool, We get a million downloads, ten million downloads, top twenty podcasts, whatever. That's not the bit that the joys really drive from. It's these moments of talking and, mm. and sharing and the, the process and you know, the behind the scenes we're chatting with the team before we started. You know, that's the joy in it, isn't it? So just mm. enjoy the process, worry a little less. It's a long-winded answer, but that's what I'd say. No,
3: it was powerful. Dr. Alex George, thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me.
4: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.